spotlighting Hawaii's leaders. We want to bring in Governor David E. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Lieutenant Governor, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Mayor Derek Kawakami. Thank you so much, uh, Senator, for being here. Spotlighting the issues. Where is the virus right now in our community? How much is this overall going to cost the state? How are you responding to the community's concerns? Talk about the level of citations that you guys are writing. Spotlight Hawaii with Yanji Denise and Ryan Kalei Suji on the digital platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing. Aloha and happy Monday on this Martin Luther King Day. I'm Ryan Kalei joined by Yanji Denise, and this is Spotlight Hawaii on the platforms of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. We hope that uh, some of you are able to enjoy this holiday and this long weekend. We are working. Someone else is working. Uh, is someone at the state capitol who we are looking forward to catching up with this morning? That's right. A lot to cover this morning. We are joined live from the capitol with Lieutenent Governor Josh Green. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, great to have you on here this morning. The Department of Health holding an unusual weekend press conference to announce that they are simply overwhelmed by the number of tests coming in. And so they've decided to stop reporting the negative tests. And that means stop reporting the full positivity rate. What's your reaction to the news over the weekend? And how does this impact our ability to track the virus? Well, it makes it a little more difficult. And uh, it's frustrating at times. I feel that frustration from people who write to me and to communicate with us, I can tell you that they're doing their best at this point because they are truly overwhelmed with the crisis that's gone on for two years. I hope that they'll be able to bring in more people because we need those numbers. The most important numbers right now, however, are the number of people that are in the hospital and the number of people that are in the intensive care unit because that is a number that ultimately will determine what our policy decisions have to be. And I can give those numbers day over day, hour over hour, in a very clear way because we get those straight from the horse's mouth from the hospital executives and the nurses that take care of patients so we have those numbers and i think that that is very helpful but i would love to have the positivity rates also you know i'm a numbers guy obviously and we talk about the positivity rate but we also talk about the rate of people getting vaccinated and the boosters and all of that at the end of the day it's how well we can keep our kupuna alive how well we can protect our loved ones and that's why I look at the hospital numbers more than anything. Today, we have 356 individuals in the hospital actively getting care for COVID. There are a couple incidental cases, people who came in for elective procedures who subsequently may have had a positive test. But essentially, we're at about 356 people in the hospital getting care. We peaked at 448 on September 3rd, if you recall. And so these are two very different parts of the pandemic. The part with Delta, when we had a peak of 448 out of 11,500 people, told us that four out of every 100 people ended up in the hospital uh, and were quite sick. Now with Omicron, we have an incredible number of cases. Today, our case count of active cases is 50,944, yet a much smaller number, 356 people, which is 0.7% ended up in the hospital. To really, um, to, to boil it down, that means that the Delta variant was five times more likely to put a person into a severe illness state and into the hospital. And we do have a smaller number of people in the ICU, thank goodness, it's 39, it's twice as high before. So these are the kind of things that I focus on. I'll tell you, the COVID pandemic has chewed up and spit out a whole lot of public health workers. And I wanna thank them for all of the hard work that they've done over these two years, uh, but we're still gonna have a lot more work to do in the next few months. 
if we can dive a little deeper into the hospitalizations and what we're seeing there right now, of course, many people continue to look at that number, as you said, because that will help to dictate what kind of policy changes are happening uh, at this point in time. What are you pro projecting and, and predicting with what we're seeing now with the daily count numbers continuing to remain high uh, with, you know, 4,000, 3,000 cases being reported uh, each day? Uh, are we still anticipating those hospitalizations to continue to move up? And if so, uh, what's maybe the timeline for any sort of action that might have to be taken with regards to restrictions? Yes, it, that's a great question. So I believe this is the week, maybe in the last 48 hours, that the case counts will likely have peaked, the total case count. That day where we had 6,000 on, I believe it was Saturday, that was an amalgamation in some ways of a few other days of cases coming in, but that was our highest high water mark of cases. And it will tend to then be reflected by a a slow and steady increase still for another eight days. And after eight days after the peak of cases, we will see the hospitalizations peak and then begin to drop down. That's what's very likely. I will tell you just the, the, the actual numbers of people in the hospital for the last five days so people can form their own opinion. We had on the 13th, 352 people in the hospital with COVID, then 347, another day with 347, then yesterday 355 and today 356. Again, there are some incidental cases that are not really COVID um, severe, and they're just there for other reasons. So it appears that we are recently at a plateau, though every single individual who is sick, um, you know, hurts because you can be so sick with COVID under some circumstances. If you are boosted, however, you avoid the intensive care unit and the ultimate uh, severe illness and ventilator status. So I think we are probably seeing the earliest part of the plateau right now for hospitalizations. And that means that we will come down. It also coincides perfectly with the surge of uh, healthcare personnel. We brought in 350 healthcare personnel, uh, many thanks to Hilton Rathill and the Healthcare Association, Department of Health and FEMA. It's incredibly timely to have those 350 nurses and a few respiratory therapists here now, and another 250 coming in next week. So as we spell the healthcare workers that caught COVID or had to go into quarantine, my colleagues, we have this extra help to not just care for patients, but also to help hopefully with more testing and more vaccinations. The boosters are key. That's where we are right now. The sickest individuals have tended to be individuals who were not vaccinated at all or were incompletely immune. Of the people in the hospital today, of the 356, 143 individuals did have two shots. That's 40%. So you're not totally protected now if it's been several months after your second shot but individuals who got a booster do not see the inside of the intensive care unit. So that's the message I like to send to people. You know, we've got right now 430,000 people that have received boosters. Those 430,000 people are the least likely to get severely ill. Okay, there's a question here from Takumi who says, is over 3,000 cases per day going to be the new norm? If we don't have a positivity rate to sort of balance these numbers and, and kind of have an idea of what's happening in our community, when we look at the raw case counts, what should we be comfortable with? Uh, and, and how fast or rapidly, I know you're not a fortune teller, but how quickly can we expect the decline and when can we get back to cases that feel a little bit more comfortable? Because honestly, a 4,700 cases this morning does seem like a lot. Yeah, it, it is a lot. It's four to six weeks down this mountain and it will go down pretty steadily. That's what happened elsewhere. Some places it went up like a, um, a, a spike, a cliff upward and a cliff downward. Uh, because they were unvaccinated. So it just swept through societies where they only had 20 to 25% of their population vaccinated, like in South Africa. For us, it was much broader um, because remember, 75.2% of all of our people are fully vaccinated. 
and then another 430,000 people have gotten that booster shot. So it's harder for any of the viruses to kind of wreak havoc in, uh, in society. So it'll come down a little slower, just like it went up a little slower than in some parts of the world. But what will happen is when we get back down to reasonable numbers, a couple hundred cases a day, and we have a total number of active cases closer to 2000, because of the hospitalization rate being as low as it is, it will not register as a health crisis any longer. That's when people will be reflecting on it as endemic and something that we live with. Because again, if you are boosted or even just because it's Omicron, it won't be as meaningful and will not be as disruptive. I know people can't wait for that. I think that you're going to see the us come significantly off peaks before the end of this month. And then in February, it will steadily come down to earth. What can you tell us about the fatalities? Uh, because we do know, unfortunately, that there are people who are still losing this battle with COVID-19. And we see those numbers each and every day. And, and you know, to some degree, we've become numb by the fatality numbers. But these are lives. These are people who are connected to others in our community. And unfortunately, we are still losing a fair amount of people to this uh, to this virus. What can you tell us about what we're learning about those individuals? Are they all primarily those who have been unvaccinated or are they, you know, do they have some pre-existing conditions? What are we learning from those uh, who unfortunately did not make it through? Well, we're learning for sure that those who had no vaccination whatsoever were extremely vulnerable because they were guaranteed to catch the Omicron variant. And then if they had any underlying conditions uh, added to that, they were ending up in severe distress. Uh, I have a dear friend who lost his father uh, who was unvaccinated and it's gut-wrenching because he knew that this was preventable. We also have seen some younger people in their 30s and 40s who, for whatever reason, were not vaccinated. And some of them had actually you know, important reasons to not be vaccinated at the time. They had immune compromises and they, they couldn't tolerate vaccinations under some circumstance. And they ended up in severe states and uh, having to be intubated. So it is still a gamut, but mostly it's people with chronic disease, especially heart and lung disease, who are more elderly and did not get that full immunity kept up. Remember, a lot of people, a lot of people are eligible for that booster and haven't received it yet. Probably another 500,000 people could be boosted right now if they chose to go get the shot because over 1.1 million people have completed their vaccinations. Young people completed them a little bit more recently, so they're not quite as eligible. Although my daughter has now had her booster. Uh, she, you know, she's 15 years old. So uh, it really depends on what people's uh, decision, their personal decision and their values are on the, on the booster. And I know that they view Omicron as less severe, but I can tell you for the 39 people that are in the intensive care right, unit right now, they all have Omicron and they all are suffering very severe disease. You have such a unique position because you obviously are a lawmaker, but you're also a doctor. And this is question more for you to put on your doctor hat for this. This is from Sherry, who says, those who already received the booster when it first became available, will they be required to get another booster? They're approaching five months since receiving the booster. Um, is this something that we should just sort of anticipate having to continue on? And, and will there be, you know, I know you're trying to push folks to get that first booster, but will there be a time then for a second booster and so on from what you understand as a medical professional? Uh, yes, they're, they're researching the data right now. So Israel already went, because they were ahead of us by six months, already went ahead and have asked for that booster to go to those who are vulnerable, that, that additional booster, that fourth shot. Those who are over 60 years old, who have chronic disease uh, and underlying conditions that made them vulnerable, and healthcare workers who are seeing, of course, everybody with COVID right now. So that's what they recommended. 
I think that we will probably come to that place also. And I do know of a lot of people here that are eager to get that fourth shot. But we haven't seen good data to demonstrate yet whether it's super protective. Having a third shot, the current booster, really is a pretty good level of protection. And I was glad to get mine, I'll tell you, because when you see people on a, on a ventilator, you know, intubated and wrestling with this, you ask yourself, how could that happen? And you realize that they had been seven or eight months since they had their second shot and that their immunity had dropped off like a cliff. And so that's why it happened to them. And they might um, have underlying diabetes. They might have COPD, which is lung disease from smoking usually. Those things really make it difficult on you if you get an upper respiratory virus. And in this case, we believe that COVID does attack people a little bit more who don't metabolize metabolize sugars properly. There's something connected there. We don't know what the effect is exactly, but there are some some signs that some medicines work a little bit better, ACE inhibitors and certain drugs for people who have caught COVID and are on those drugs. So there's lots and lots to find out and learn about this, this uh, virus still, but getting the booster is great. I think you're going to see ultimately a recommendation of an annual booster for coronavirus. That's what it looks like to me, much like the flu virus uh, vaccination, because it changes a little bit and we'll want to be up to date on our vaccination. Another area of frustration for many residents right now is the availability of testing options. We're seeing you know, continuing long lines at various testing locations with people waiting hours being able to get some of those PCR tests. Of course, it's also very difficult to find any rapid at-home tests right now. Uh, we spoke to Scott Miskovich on this program, someone who has been involved in this whole COVID-19 testing, especially uh, from the beginning. And he said the tests are out there. We just need to know where to order them from. Uh, but there seems to be just a lack of testing availability for those residents here in Hawaii. Why can you tell us about any updates that are being done to help get that test uh, into the hands of people and make that more available for people who need testing? Sure. Well, Scott makes very good points. He's a friend. And, uh, you know, we went from three to 4,000 tests a day up to about 15,000 tests a day, uh, which even that is, of course, inadequate because there's so many people that need to be tested, whether they're going to school or their teachers or their healthcare workers or first responders. It's such a big deal that the federal government's intervening and has authorized 500 million tests up to eight per month for people to get, and it would be covered by insurance. So that's coming, although it can't come quickly enough. It is hard for uh, we civilians to just go out and order a bunch of tests. Even my own family, we've gone often to Long's or CVS and bought tests when we could find them, you know, over-the-counter tests, just to be testing with some frequency so that I wasn't putting anyone else at risk because I'm out there a lot. It's difficult. And the best thing you can do is continue to get vaccinated and wear a mask. You know that's what's going to protect you from spread uh, better than anything else. And by the way, that mask, if you can, should be an N95. It's, it's clear that that's a little bit more protective than just a cloth mask, if you can do it. Uh, but yes, I think lots of testing should be done. We have not seen the authorization yet, even the emergency use authorization of this extremely cheap strip tests, which have been proposed. And one of our inventors, even in our state, had proposed some of those. So hopefully that will come over time. In the new world, going forward, you can expect us to be dealing with pande pandemics and outbreaks as our largest threat, even more say than um, domestic terrorism or foreign terrorism. This is a bigger health threat, a bigger economic threat than anything else has been. Therefore, you'll see innovation. And I think cheap tests will become part of life uh, on some level, especially in the winter seasons when the coronavirus and the flu will also coincide. This coming year in the fall, I know people don't wanna worry about the fall yet, but when we have the next 
uh, iteration of COVID and the flu. People will wonder, do I have the flu or do I have COVID because it's gotten so much more mild? That's when it will be really valuable to distinguish between the two. I want to ask you about safe travels. Of course, you were the architect of that program, and you also uh, helped to lead the vaccination. Uh, you know, when we, when vaccines were first made available in Hawaii, do you think that safe travels should be modified so that boosters are part of the requirement? This is something when we talked to Maui Mayor Mike Victorino, he said that he personally had been pushing the governor to make that change. We asked the governor about making that change. He said it would take, even if he did make it tomorrow, it would take at least two weeks because you got to give people a heads up. Do you think that that change should be made? Um, and if so, how soon could we expect that? Yes, it should be made and it should be boosted or tested. It's got to be straightforward and simple. Otherwise, it will create chaos. I think that's what the best recommendation is. And so if someone's in that gray zone because they're just eligible, sure, we shouldn't discriminate against them. But you will still be able to get a test if you want to come in through safe travels because we're not going to discriminate against people, not let them travel if they happen for whatever personal reason they may have to simply not get vaccinated. But Mike was smart when he recommended that. We were in communication constantly about that. And that's been my recommendation. Just keep it simple, please. Boosted or tested. Because come February, that has given people enough time to go and get that booster. And if you got two shots and you did them, say, last summer, your second shot last June or July, I'm not sure they're really giving you that much protection come springtime. So it would take two to four weeks at least. We are anticipating, and we're working on it right now, anticipating those changes coming in sometime in or around February 1st. That's what the governor would like to see. It's probably more realistic that February 15th is when they'd be able to launch that program. But again, I don't want to throw everybody in the mainland for a loop. Ironically, our case counts and our hospital numbers will be coming down very uh, significantly right about then. So it shouldn't be something that worries people quite so much. This is a large process, as we've all seen, and nothing is perfect. I never said that the Safe Travels program could be perfect, but it was enough to keep us as a, you know, a travel hub, a, a tourist destination alive. And we were able to keep our counts as the lowest in the country. We Believe it or not, even though there's a lot of cases right now, we have the lowest positivity rate in the whole country. And we're in the middle of the ocean where everybody wants to visit us. So it was just enough to protect us and keep us alive um, with our small businesses. What are your thoughts on any restrictions that need to be made to gathering sizes? Of course, there are current restrictions that are placed on those who are able to gather. I was recently at an event where, you know, everybody was actually required to be boosted. Uh, and still within that group of individuals, you know, 80% of people ended up leaving that, that event getting COVID-19, uh, regardless of being boosted because of the, you know, how, how Omicron kind of breaks through that. Uh, do you believe that there needs to be any restrictions placed on gathering sizes moving forward, knowing that the vaccines are helping, but clearly it's not stopping this virus from spreading? Uh, common sense would dictate if we can avoid large gatherings, we should, especially if you're vulnerable. But at this point, people have to make up their own uh, decisions and their own minds. If you are vulnerable and you've got underlying health conditions, you should not be going to any large gatherings because you could be sure you're going to catch Omicron. And you could end up as one of those unfortunate individuals that have a breakthrough case. You're not fully vaccinated because maybe you didn't get your booster and you still end up sick. Remember, 100 and what I say, 143 out of 356 of the people in the hospital have at least two shots and they still ended up in the hospital. So going to a big gathering pretty much condemns you to that risk. But we're moving on. I mean, schools are open because it's very important that children have development, that they have a good meal. It's probably the best meal that most children who are living near poverty are going to get. 
we have extreme concerns about uh, their psychological development if they're at home for long periods of time without stimuli. So those are gatherings. Those are large gatherings, schools. So we just have to be smart and careful. But the best news is, is we're, we're able to manage the healthcare needs of our people. There's really no way to stop a virus that's got an R0 of 10, if I'm being blunt. R0 of 10, I'll remind people, means that if one person catches it, they're going to spread it to 10 others. So when it's that infectious, pretty much anyone around you is going to catch it. And you got to wear a mask. You have to be boosted to avoid severe illness. But you probably will spread Omicron if you're at some big gathering. And I think people, they know. They know what their risk is. So if they're going to a major show, they're cognizant of that. I want to get clarification on safe travels and your idea of boosted or tested. First of all, why not boosted and tested? That's the first part. And second of all, would that mean that you would get rid of the self-quarantine option for that program? It would just be those two options? Right. So if it's if it's boosted or tested, that's kind of consistent with what we've done. Uh, placing people in quarantine or isolation is extremely difficult when you have these kind of numbers. I mean, with 50,944 people actively with COVID right now, and then another 50,000 assuredly have, you know, COVID and haven't been registered with tests. That's like almost one-tenth of our population. There's no way you can put people adequately into quarantine or isolation unless they're doing it at home. Okay, so that's the one thing. And to do boosted and tested, honestly, there aren't enough tests out there in the universe to do that. And remember, boosted and tested would mean that you are setting a standard where you're mandating vaccinations for travel. And that is not something that's really legal. So you would be condemning people to quarantine and very few people will come. So we're, we're trying to hang on because we're trying to make sure that we keep the economy available so we can pay for the very hospital staff that we need. Or, you know, this, uh, this government uh, intervention, if you will, nationally is not cheap. Just for example, the, um, the up to 900 nurses and respiratory therapists that we're going to bring into Hawaii is going to cost $90 million. Now, FEMA is covering that because it's part of the emergency response, and we're very grateful for that. But that's a lot of money uh, for eight weeks of additional nurses. Uh, it's very expensive to come to Hawaii and put people up, and you make sure that they're well enough to be you know, working directly with patients. So we have to keep life going. And fortunately, the mortality rate is way lower with Omicron. That's why it's spreading so much. That's the very nature of a, of a variant or a mutation like this. It's going to be more infectious, but less lethal, and therefore it will create a lot more immunity. So this is the this is the pathway, and it's a bumpy pathway, but the pathway to getting widespread immunity in society. Another issue that we have been seeing, of course, is while we are holding steady so far with the hospitalizations, we're seeing the impact that it's having to the overall workforce. I mean, just looking at the personnel of medical professionals that are having to call in sick, we're seeing this in our schools with teachers also being unavailable and leading to schools having to shuffle some places, having to go virtual because of the fact that they don't have enough teachers there. And we're even seeing it with restaurants and other establishments with so many people now being infected. What are your thoughts on how we manage this moving forward, knowing that this is something that continues to impact people and their ability to go to work? It's changing the, the way society functions. It really is. Uh, the pandemic has had some large impacts on society already. Uh, in the short term, the practical impact is, yes, there are going to be sometimes shorter hours at certain restaurants or retail establishments. 
Schools may have to adjust their hours over time uh, periodically. There are real challenges, or certainly they're going to have to be more flexible with their substitute teachers and those who support our children at school. And we'll be understanding of all of that. You saw there was already a major adjustment in the rules from the CDC to decrease from 10 days to five days, the amount of time someone would have to quarantine. And that was born out of necessity for the survival of the nation and its economy, because people still have needs. They need to have food production. They need to have shipping. They have to have hospital care. So that was necessary. We're also seeing a very quick shift in how people look at work. And that's why we've had uh, what's sometimes described as the great work exodus, which is a lot of people leaving the workforce because they, if they weren't making enough money to really satisfy their needs, they're actually saying it's not worth the risk. And so we're going to see some new industries uh, pop up that have less risk. But finally, a lot of people are saying, I'm going to work differently. I'm going to work from home which could have some collateral benefits. You know, we were talking a lot about traffic before we got into the whole COVID crisis, and we were talking about over-tourism, which is obviously a huge problem for us in Hawaii. Well, now we're able to manage that a lot better because we have a different expectation of how many people should come and whether we should be at a workplace or not. So there's some interesting changes that are happening. It's something that I'm actually preparing our government for if I'm asked to lead going forward. Uh, because I think we have to be more nimble. I think we should make sure that people are productive, that they earn their keep, and they have to date. But we might not need quite the same amount of infrastructure or the same amount of office space that's quite costly to taxpayers. We might actually do better by having restaurants do more takeout for some. Some have liked that. So the world's reshaping itself. And I'm not saying that we should view this as a sociologic experiment, but we are have, you know, we're having to reassess what matters to us. And I appreciate how you know, people have rolled with the punches. I've been incredibly impressed by our, our community here in Hawaii. I gotta ask you, uh, legislative session starts in two days. Um, this is kind of a non-COVID question, but the governor is sort of poised. Uh, we see the, the startings of a battle over the budget uh, with the legislative leadership and the governor's office. I'm interested to know, do you think it's appropriate to put a billion dollars in the rainy day fund, or do you agree with some of your colleagues in the House, former colleagues in the House and Senate, that that money should be spent, more of that money should be spent now? I agree with my colleagues in this case, my former colleagues. I think more of that money should be spent now. And I think it should be spent because it is raining today. And I think it should be spent on mental health care, behavioral health, uh, addiction that has surged, helping people with uh, their unemployment insurance and the losses that small businesses have had. I think we should invest in our people right now. And I, and I don't mean to be contrary to our gov, I, but I do feel that I'm very close to people, actually. That's one of the benefits of being lieutenant governor and a doctor, and I know how they've suffered. So I'd invest that money there. I would, I would say that the legislature also should be mindful because they're looking at legislation to perhaps scale back emergency powers for the governor, uh, whoever that governor is. And you know, there's a few of us running for governor. It's a 24-7 job when you are, are trying to work in the executive branch. And if I'm chosen to be governor, I will work collaboratively day and night, night and day with my legislative friends, uh, the leaders on that part of the government and that branch of government. But there are some things that you have to do in the middle of the night and you don't want to ever restrict that in order to save people. You know, you got to be ready to, to weigh in and, and rescue people from a crisis. So I'd be a little careful about that piece of legislation, but I can't wait to see my friends again. And uh, we, we agree to disagree on some matters, but there's going to be a lot of work that's necessary to rebuild Hawaii after the pandemic. And for those of us who have been working on this uh, for the last two years, 
I think we're pretty, pretty in touch with the needs of the people. And that's why, obviously, I think we should spend that money now. And, you know, it's no surprise that I'm, you know, I'm gearing up for a long-term plan for our state, uh, if people will have me. Uh, we do want to ask you about those plans. Uh, you know, you haven't officially formally announced yet. Uh, and there are others who have uh, announced for this race as well. Uh, your thoughts moving forward as you prepare to run for office. Yes. Uh, so Jamie and I are preparing uh, to reach out to everyone sometime in the very near future. Uh, inside of a month, I believe, uh, we'll give you our final decision and our announcement. It's a, you know, it's a deeply personal decision because we've gone through so much together as lieutenant governor and community. And it really has been an honor. So we'll make that decision as soon as we get through the last throes of this COVID crisis. You know, there are still 39 people in the intensive care unit. So honestly, I'm focusing mostly on COVID right now and, and also to a degree on Red Hill. Those are where my areas of focus are, but the decision's coming and I don't want people to feel me uh, coy. I just want to make sure we deal with our crises a little bit before politics rears its head. Uh, on the subject of politics before we get off of this, and I know that there are some people in the comments who don't want us to talk about politics, but uh, it's happening all around us. Of course, last week we saw uh, three former deputies uh, or high-ranking folks at Honolulu Hale turn themselves into the FBI. Um, there's a lot of rumblings about what that could mean for one of your potential opponents, former Mayor Kirk Caldwell. Do you have anything to say about what's happened at Honolulu Hale in that regard? I really don't. You know, these are things that I was not a part of or um, even aware of different branch of government, different part of government. I really am just focused on the surge of COVID that we've had. We've had this incredible surge and it's meant that 50,000 of our people have got COVID in the last two weeks. So that means a heck of a lot more to me than politics does. So I'm sure that will play out in whatever way it's meant to, but I will focus on COVID and Red Hill and probably mostly issues uh, during the campaign more than people would expect because my role as lieutenant governor really needs me working. And that's that's what you'll see from me. Um, but I don't wish anyone ill. I, I would say that. I, I hope that people can resolve these matters, but I'll be focused on COVID and Red Hill for a while. As we wind up here, and we do appreciate you taking the time on this holiday to join us, I wanted to get your final thoughts as we move forward. Obviously, people continue to see these high case counts. Uh, you know, they're worried about what that potentially means for just the overall spread of this COVID-19 uh, Omicron variant in our community. Uh, and while some experts, you know, are saying this could be going around for a while, um, what, is, what is your message, I guess, to those individuals out there who continue to be worried about where we're at right now with these case count numbers and where we're at as a state? What I would say is we have the tools in our hands uh, to control our own destiny. If you have had two shots of the vaccine already, you are eligible very likely to go get a booster and go get one because you will not get sick. You will not be looking over your shoulder uh, for the Omicron variant coming to get you. You will be safer so that you don't end up hospitalized and you won't have to worry about the impact on your family either. So I think that we have the tools. We've learned so much. So we know how to prevent significant spread, clusters and outbreaks. It's not easy, but we know to not go to raves and we know not to go to unmasked large events. Those are guaranteed uh, incidents for infection and, and its spread. So we know the right things to do. We also know how to keep our businesses open now with a little caution. We know that our kids can be safely at school. They may catch COVID. My son Sam caught COVID at school. I, I want people to know that. And this was before he could get vaccinated. He was fine, did fine, he's a young guy. but. It's a part of our reality, and we should never move away from what we know to be reality. We should take it head on, 
we should be brave about it and we should make good decisions based on science which i hope that we've done more than most you know we've had the second lowest mortality rate which you know for covid i'm so grateful because we have lost loved ones we've lost you know 1126 loved ones we have projected to lose 11,000 people over the course of like 24 to 26 months if we had let it go um, and run through our society without any kind of uh, measures, stopgap measures and, and good science. So we're trying to lead in a way that is sensible, science-based and also understanding. People pulled together like you can't believe. Being out here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean all alone has meant that we had to do a lot of this for ourselves. And look what we've done we've kept our cases low and we've survived. And that means coming out the other side of this, we're going to be a much tighter, um, much better organized society that cares for one another. We came through something as Nohana, and so it shouldn't be a cliche going forward. We really achieved that. I know that was supposed to be the last thing you said, but the, but I can't let you go without asking about Sam. Is he okay? And and I'm so sorry to hear that he got sick. Yeah, he's totally fine. He um, He's wonderful. And he he had COVID. I will tell you this. He had COVID right at the peak of the protests that were going on outside our house. So it was quite a week, you know, when Sammy was there in his bedroom and, and isolating. But like every good 11-year-old, he was playing video games with his buddies. And, uh, you know, we were giving him uh, comfort food. So that kid is tough. And a lot of kids have had to be tough throughout this crisis. Uh, but I, having seen that, you worry. All of a sudden, I was just a dad. I wasn't a doctor or a lieutenant governor. And you worry about your kids. Uh, very few children have been hospitalized, and we're extremely grateful for that in our state. And we have a wonderful children's hospital in Capulani. So we felt comfortable as parents that he was going to be okay. But we also saw the realities of what can happen in schools and what can happen to any of us. So everyone should just know um, we're all in this together. Please be safe. Make the best decisions for your loved ones. And soon it will be over. So spite of Omicron, fewer hospitalizations, fewer intensive care unit uh, admissions, and more help on the way this week and next. So I want people to know that we're okay. Okay, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, thank you for that update. We're so glad to hear that Sam is okay. And thank you for joining us here on this holiday Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Aloha. Interesting to hear his predictions there. And also that personal revelation. I had no idea that the Lieutenant Governor's uh, young son had suffered COVID and we are glad to hear that he is okay. He of course, too young at the time to have the vaccination. Um, but the Lieutenant Governor kind of giving us a context talking about the development at the Department of Health. If you missed that over the weekend, the Department of Health announcing that they would not be releasing a positivity rate. There are simply too many cases coming in for them to crunch all of those numbers. So they're just going to be giving raw data, just the case counts every day. And they said that would probably be for about two weeks until they can kind of get that data all under control. They also said that they really aren't doing uh, significant contact tracing because they just don't have the ability. And when you look at how many numbers there are, how many cases there are rather, uh, that seems uh, pretty obvious as to why. The Lieutenant Governor, though, saying that he thinks we are plateauing right now when it comes to cases, and he does expect a decline. So he is saying that, you know, we still need to be careful, uh, but that things will improve by his estimation sometime in the near future. Yeah, he's he's predicting that things will continue to remain as where they have been for these last few weeks for the next week or so uh, before we start seeing some of those numbers begin to drop off uh, going into the early part of February. Of course, this is a lot different from what we've heard from experts that we've had on this program. You know, Tim Brown, who uh, works with the East West Center, says that this is a spike that could continue on for some time. Of course, he follows 
uh, these variants and does a lot of research on this. He doesn't predict that this is going to necessarily come down anytime soon. Uh, we also heard from Scott Miskovich, who also said that he thinks that this is going to be something that we're going to be experiencing for some time. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, on the other hand, though, saying that he thinks that this is something that will begin to start seeing a decline in, uh, again, early February. So we'll have to wait to see. I think a number that everyone will continue to watch, however, is those hospitalizations as that will de determine any future uh, policy changes or restrictions that would be put in place by uh, the governor or the mayors once we get to the point where the hospitals cannot handle the amount of uh, patients that are required uh, care at that time. Right. We do have those relief medical workers that have come in, about half of the people that we are expecting to come in on behalf, you know, FEMA's footing the bill there. He said it's $90 million to have these folks come in for, I believe, about eight to 10 weeks. Uh, but that is much needed relief at our hospitals right now. And he also talked about potential travels, uh, changes to the safe travels program, asking people that they be boosted or tested before they come to the islands. That would be a change. He says that he would hope that it would happen by the 1st of February, but more realistically, probably by the middle of the month. Yeah. So, well, uh, you know, Lieutenant Governor always spurs on a lot of conversation and comments. We thank all of you for entering your comments. We know that some of you may not agree with his policy and some of you uh, are, are happy with the job that he's doing, but uh, our intent here is really to just provide questions and summarize some of the questions that come in. We know that there have been a lot today, and we do try our best to get those questions in there to help uh, provide some context into what's happening right now. And the conversation will continue on Wednesday. That's right. It's the start of the legislative session. We heard there a little talk at the end about uh, that billion-dollar rainy day fund. What is the state budget looking like? Uh, the billion dollars that the governor, rather, wants to put in the rainy day fund and some uh, disagreement there with the lieutenant governor and also the legislative, uh, the lawmakers that are going to be coming into the state house. Uh, we are talking to Carl Bonham from UH. He, of course, uh, covers the economy from for UHERO. And he'll be giving us his estimation as to, you know, how we got to a position that we can even have that conversation about having a billion dollars extra and um, and that kind of wiggle room, what should happen to that money and kind of long term economic forecast for this year and beyond. So we always love having Carl Bonham on and we hope you will join us right back here for that conversation Wednesday at 1030. We'll see you then. Aloha. This episode of Spotlight Hawaii is brought to you by Long's Drugs and Beachside Roofing.